Hello, gentlemen. Joseph. <laughs> Hello. Joe, how do we pronounce your last name? We pronounce it Leosi, although it's kind okay. of spelled Leoche. Uh, okay. <laughs> half the family spells it my way. Half the family spells it L-I-O-C-E. We're probably both wrong. One of those Ellis <laughs> Island stories of, you know, what's your name, Leosi? How do you spell it? What's spelling? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty common. But uh, yeah, so but it's, it's been Leosi and some people, teachers, I remember having a lot of problems with it in school. Yeah, well, those were the two ways that we were guessing. It was right. either going to be the soft C or the chi kind yeah. of sound. <laughs> Well, it's good to meet you, sir. Yeah, very good to meet you. Uh, you as well. I've uh, I've enjoyed uh, some of the podcasts that I've seen. Uh, obviously, excited uh, with Mike Puccio's podcast. I've I've known him for a long time and consider him my my brother from another mother, if you will. Oh, excellent! And, uh, and a lot of other people as well. Some I've caught. You know, J.R. Tracy is a good friend of mine, and uh, okay. a lot of the other guys from uh, these past. Uh, a million years, it seems. Yeah, we had interviewed Jr. really early in the show, like a hundred episodes ago, or probably more. Right. And I remember him going, "How did you pick me?" And I was like, "Well, I met you at an ASL tournament, and you are a gamer in New York." And back then, we were we didn't think we could get the big names. <laughs> uh, he he's a big name. J Jr. is terrific. Yeah, uh, isn't he? And uh, you know his. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of going to his uh, space, if you will, uh, in Manhattan, but it's a, it's definitely an experience. Um, I remember going there, and besides the fact that you know it's it's opulent with you know twelve or fourteen foot ceilings and uh, mahogany shelves and all this other stuff, every military book I've ever seen anywhere he has. Every military game I've ever seen anywhere he has, among along with lots of other games on all different subjects and titles. And every day, more and more stuff pours in, and there are just piles of books and models and games in the corner. And there's almost no room for the players, if you will. It's amazing. It really is. Yeah, our guy like that is Mike Rizzi here, and he... I, I don't think he's been to JR's place, but he knows of JR's place. Yes, and no. he also could tell us how how massive and com complete it is with everything you'd ever want. You know? yeah, it's, it's just amazing. And he's a very gracious host. And uh, you know, I've got to know his wife over the years and met his daughters and all that stuff. So it's uh, he's he's a special guy and uh, he's he's special to the hobby as well. Yeah, and he is active on Twitter. He's one of the guys that we you know see a lot of postings on and he plays lots of different games too yeah right? he does he does yeah, we should try to get him on again dave and uh maybe get a a video tour of his space if he oh, it's it's, uh, it's definitely worthwhile yeah yeah so where are you joseph I'm in Staten Island, New York. Um, it's a, it's a, it's interesting because there are many New Yorkers who have never been on Staten Island. Some who profess they never ever want to come onto Staten Island, and uh, it's, uh, but, but you know, it, it's. I was raised in Brooklyn, and at some point in time, it seemed as though 
every Italian or Jew on, in Brooklyn moved to Staten Island. And when they got here, the native Staten Islanders say, you know, this used to be a nice place till you ruined it. And they go west to New, New Jersey. Well, uh, I've I've stayed here. Uh, I've been in, in this home for 44 years or so and probably got to Staten Island a couple years before that. And it really was a, before the bridge went up. Uh, it was a lot of farmland and stuff out here. When my family first moved out in 73, uh, we moved not far from here. And I think there were a grand total of six houses on this road with nothing behind it. And now, forget about it. Yeah, every, every place there's a postage stamp sized piece of land they're building on it. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. So Amazing. It? You know, I, I personally, and I, I'm probably going to speak for Dave here too, have no knowledge of the New York, the whole yeah. New York culture and the whole sure, thing, yeah. other than what we pick up, what little we pick up from TV shows. Well, I'm sure you've heard of the Staten Island Ferry, and you know my yeah. uncle, yeah, was a captain for 35 years and a super oh. captain. I've steered the boat. My kids have steered the boat. Uh, it's it's really uh, it's really a, a great New York thing, and it still costs nothing. Uh, you can ride it for free in both directions. So uh, if you ever get a chance, uh, I'll do what I did when I was uh, entertaining clients as a radio time salesman in New York City. I'd take them on the boat for nothing, buy them a hot dog and a Coke, and they were happier than if I took them to, you know, a, a New York famous restaurant. Yeah. Yeah, That's probably. <laughs> it was really something, a lot of fun. That's great. Someday somebody's going to figure out if you have it free one way, but you have to pay to get the other way. Yeah, they, so, you know, what's going on there? The Staten Island, there, there's so much tourism that if they charged a buck, they'd make a lot of money for the city uh, using it. But uh, for some reason, they've just never done it. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So you've been there for a long time now. Yeah. How did you, uh, how did you get into gaming? Let's get into the, your history. Yeah, I mean, I'm um, I'm an identical twin. I have literally my other brother, Daryl. And in oh. fact, it's interesting because everybody knows me as, as Joe Leosi, but I was called Joel all my life because my brother was a surprise and my mother named my brother out of a baby book and decided that with twins, Joel and Daryl would sound nice, it would sound fun. So I was called Joel all my life and yet it really isn't my name. So it's interesting because some people know me as Joel, most people know me as Joe, and I, I kind of don't subscribe to either. I mean, I'm comfortable or uncomfortable with either one, either of them. So that's depending on, who's, uh, depending on who's talking to you. Yeah, uh, something like yeah. that. Uh, as as kids, you know, I had a built-in uh, play partner, and uh, you know, we did what a lot of, I guess, you and and a lot of the other kids did. You know, we played army men and and you know and stuff like that and then you know winter time would come around and we'd build the fort the ice forts out front and you know have mock battles and whatnot and i guess uh, also back then and i'm 69 now you know they had the uh, the mattel toys and the uh, the greeny stickum caps and the guns and so it just seemed like so much of the toys that we played with were related in some way shape or form to um you know shooting or warfare or something like that and then i guess at some point we started to get into the games like uh, i guess the uh, 
uh, that the early Civil War game, Battle Cry. Battle and, Cry. Um, and I remember, I've even gotten some vintage games one year at the Albany tournament, uh, and we do raffles every year. I got copies of all four of those uh, those games, the Battle Cry and then- Dogfight? Uh, yes, Dogfight, which was great, and Hit the Beach. Hit the beach. Uh, and, and there was another one, too. And with ships. Yeah, yeah, and I and I gave and and I and Tom Moran uh, won it, and he won one of them and traded so he could get all four of them because he remembered playing those with his two brothers uh, when he was yeah. kid, when they were kids. So we played all those games, and I remember, uh, you know, the 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 Swamp Fox game, which I guess grew out of the Disney television show, and it just seemed like you know, Marx would put out the the Civil War set with the exploding bunker, and you know, and the the caissons and everything, and they'd have the television commercials, and you know, you'd be inspired. And then on top of that, uh, they used to have the Million Dollar Movie in New York, where every night. They'd show the same movie Monday through Friday, and then on Saturday and Sunday, show the same film three times a day. And I can remember watching Gunga Din every time, every week it was on. It still remains my, my favorite film. And so I guess, you know, th those were how my interests started to build. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, getting into ASL, um, Back in the early 80s, and I don't know exactly when in the 80s it was, um, I was selling advertising time for stations around the country, and there was one in Detroit that had never had Toys R Us business on before, and I and I won them the Toys R Us business. And so to, to reward me, they sent me $100 worth of gift certificates to Toys R Us. Ah. So I took the family to Toys R Us, and everybody got something. And I'm looking around, and I find Squad Leader on the shelf. And, you know, take a look at it and take a look at the soldier and you know, the description of Stalingrad and this and that. And it sounded really interesting and, and like it was a lot of fun. So I got it and I found the what then I thought was a pretty large instruction booklet inside, which I think was all of maybe 40 pages. Oh, yeah. Was, you know, the 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 uh, the, the program the instruction where it's going to stop. You've learned enough to play the first scenario. You know? Yeah. And uh my wife's younger sister was uh, had just started to go out with the guy who became my brother-in-law. And I said, are you interested in this stuff? And he said, yeah, it looks pretty cool. So we started to get into it. And, uh, and, and we did the whole program thing and, you know, and, and started to play the games and enjoyed it. And probably were playing those games for a couple of years. And at some point, for some reason, we stopped playing. And I wasn't even aware exactly when Advanced Squad Leader came out, but at some point, for some reason, I got interested in getting back into it, and, and I found Advanced Squad Leader, and it was an interesting concept, and it was a little strange and a little frightening because it almost seemed like to simplify the game, they made it more complex. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a hard thing to, to describe, but there were complexities that weren't there before and yet there were aspects of it like i think firing and moving and things like that which were actually simpler than it was before in my opinion so we started to play that and and the only opponent i had was my my brother-in-law and in fact what we used to do was i was the only one with my own home so all the family events would end up here 
uh, for Thanksgiving and Christmas and all. So we, what we try and do is set up a game at some point. And what we'd have to do is play either really late at night um, or not at all. So we'd end up being up to three and four o'clock in the morning. And then what we started to do is he, he lived in Brooklyn and we started to say, you know what, let's play over the phone. So I'd say, I'll call you at 1130. And we'd call each other and we'd leave the line open and we'd have the board set out in front of us and, you know, dice and whatnot. And for two, three, four hours, we'd play one another over the phone. Just talking and, and describing yeah, yeah, the just, movements. Yeah, yeah, speaking over the phone and calling out the hex numbers and, you know, the movement points and all this other stuff. And you know, we we both trusted one another implicitly. So there was never a question that that deuce was a deuce or, you know, whatever else it was. So we did that for quite a while. And then finally we got the irk uh, or the desire to play, play somebody else. And we became aware of Atlanticon 1990. And so that turned out to be the first tournament we ever attended. Uh, we took the Amtrak down. It was really nice. We went in the, the dining car from Manhattan where we both worked. And we, we, we went down. And I remember uh, Camden Yards was being built in the distance, and it was at some uh, convention center, if you will. And it was huge. I mean, I think there was something like you know, 130 guys or something playing ASL. And there were lots of other games going on, et cetera, et cetera. So it was the first time we played anyone other than each other. And it's interesting because there were some rules that we were interpreting or misinterpreting a certain way yeah. that we discovered the correct interpretation of their like rate of fire. And I, and I, I, I remember the first time I'm sitting there against the guy with a, a heavy machine gun, he's going, you know, bang, rate of fire, bang, rate of fire. And he's like seven or eight shots and my mouth was open. I just, I couldn't believe it. And then at the end of that session, I went to my brother-in-law and said, Hey, did you know? And, and he had the same experience. And so, um, so when when you guys played it, did you only get take take one rate of fire, even if you were? Yeah, I think so. I, I I can't remember because it's a long time ago exactly yeah. how we did it, but somehow we we missed that, yeah. and it it wasn't evident to us in the rule book that that, that was the way to play it. So um, so that was an experience, and and it was a fun experience that we enjoyed very much. And so after that, when it became, I guess, Avalon Con, we used to go down and attend Avalon Con and play every year. It would be like our annual pilgrimage. So now, and so that was a lot of fun. Uh, let me ask you, um, in these early days when you were playing with your brother-in-law, were you aware that there was this uh, big community of gamers out there? Were you involved you know, in any of that? Uh, the news I, I wasn't. I wasn't involved in it. Uh, I guess I kind of had an inkling that it existed, but for whatever reason, it was something that we really didn't seek out uh, for a while. I mean, you know, maybe we thought the wives wouldn't let us go. I'm not sure. But uh, at any rate, uh, once we got into it, it was it was incredible. It was like a revelation and it was so much fun and it really it grew. And then all of a sudden, it started to uh, shrink is probably too strong a term, but the numbers began to dwindle, began to go go back in the other direction. And I, I remember, you know, wondering about why that was. And I guess among the reasons were the fact that more regional tournaments had started to pop up and people were finding tournaments closer to home. 
that they could go to and either, you know, maybe they can even go and, and play and, and not even have to stay at a hotel or whatever else it was. So, so that happened. And so I don't know exactly when it was the first time I went to the Nor'easter, but uh, the Nor'easter tournament up in Boston or the environs around Boston uh, was a tournament that had started. And so uh, I had some some friends who knew some other people who were involved with that. And so um, I went up there and enjoyed that. And what that led me to was I started to make models. ASL got me into uh, reading military history um, and then collecting, you know, military books and after a while, they got kind of dry. So it, I branched out to like uh, um, alternate history or, you know, military fiction and things like that. And then I went from World War II to the other eras, et cetera, et cetera. And it also got me into model making. And, you know, I had made models primarily of, you know, cars and hot rods and things like that as a kid. And at some point started to get more sophisticated and started to do the, you know, the putting different engines in or, you know, doing the flocking and, you know, making it look like it was actual material on the seats and all that stuff. And then I had never done any military models. So... ASL got me into, let me try a tank. So I, I, I think the first tank I made was, it was either a Sherman, uh, an Italiary Sherman, uh, or a Panzer IV. And I just, you know, I did them up and I, you know, painted them with paintbrushes and whatnot. And they were okay. And I, I set them aside for a while. And then I go up to the Nor'easter and one of the guys up there, Steve Johns, who's also an, an excellent designer of scenarios, uh, he was a model maker and he made the first place trophy, which was a diorama. And it was, I think I recall it were a couple of German uh, Panzer Grenadiers placing a magnetic mind on, uh, I think it was a KV or T-34, I can't remember, but he did a really nice job with it and I got inspired. So I came back and I pulled my models out and I started to work on them in different ways. And I took the Sherman and I started to do scratch building and I built the cages and made sandbags out of putty and poured plaster over my son's Indiana Jones base, uh, which had a parts that looked like it was like the entrance to a bridge. And I made a winter diorama and that was my first attempt. Um, and I, and I ultimately, went on to make more and more dioramas and I was making them for the nor'easter every year and um and then what happened was I decided that hey you know New York should have a tournament and one of the, the real impetus behind it for me was that I wanted more places to play because I would play at, at Atlanticon or Avaloncon and I would play at nor'easter but that was about it uh, and I didn't play as many scenarios or as many games as I would like to. So I said, boy, I'd love to have another place to play. And New York should have its tournament. But in looking around, it really is impossible to do it in New York City itself because it's too expensive. It Logistically, it's too hard to get around. Um, you know, food is expensive. The hotels are expensive, et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, I did explore one thing because in my radio career, one of my clients was the carrier Intrepid. And, you know, they would advertise for people to do tourism and whatnot. And I remember one year there was a modeling show on the carrier. 
And so I was thinking that it would really be nice to do an ASL tournament within the confines of the carrier itself. It would really be cool. But the, the guy I was working with was a difficult guy to work with. And I never really got a clear picture of their degree of interest or how much money was involved. And, and I kind of let it drop. And then I decided that since New York seemed impossible, let me look for a location that would sort of be central to the Northeast that would draw players or could draw players from New England, you know, Connecticut, Western New York, you know, Maryland, like that. And I just kind of pinpointed Albany. It just seemed geographically to be in the right place. Uh, and from the standpoint of highways and things like that, fairly easy to get to. And so I started to work on this idea. And, and I had a couple of friends. Um, Gary Trezza uh, was the guy who really was my right-hand man, if you will. I was the founder, because so I had the idea. But he had a lot more experience with tournaments, and he was a lot more into the community in terms of uh, contacting them and being in touch with people either by phone or over the Internet, both locally, nationally, regionally, even internationally. And so he got involved. And we came up with this idea and, and I found a hotel. Uh, it was over the internet. I never physically went up there and it was a best Western. Uh, and so it just so happened that I lucked out because they had a ballroom and it was spacious and it was well lit and it was reasonably priced. And so we just started to you know, come up with this idea and was able to put it together. And so I think 2004 was the year that we launched Albany. And I guess we had about 25 attendees, which seemed to be you know, pretty good. It was fewer than I had hoped for, but you know, not bad for the first, uh, first time out. And people liked it and we started to have it again and again. And um, Gary was instrumental because what he would do is he'd get out to these players and challenge them. And he'd say, so-and-so is out to get you or is looking for a game with you. He says he can kick your ass. And you know, so Gary was that kind of a guy. And he would, he would, he ultimately drove a lot of interest and attention. And so we started to grow. And I think in that in that second year, we probably went from 25 to, to 37. And then in year three, we were probably up, you know, in the mid 40s. And and ultimately, uh, it, it gained the reputation of being uh, a real tough field, um, uh, very competitive um, and, and a, a good place to play and a, and a good venue with, you know, seamless tables and, you know, and just that, you know, a nice environment and all that stuff. And it, and it went along real well. And we ultimately got to the point where I think at, at the height we hit about 65 players with you know, five Europeans. Uh, Toby, Toby Pilling came over uh, from England and we had players coming over from um, Norway and Sweden and whatnot. And, and then we'd get Canadians and maybe we'd have five or so Canadians and we got some players from, you know, like as far west as Chicago. I, mean, I think once Mark McCloskey came in from California um, before he really started his whole uh, Australian thing with uh, first with his guys and then ultimately with MMP recently. So, uh, yeah, it, it really got, it became very successful. And then at some point, Gary burned out. 
and he's just decided that he wanted out. And I, f I forget the timing now. I mean, you know, sometimes I can't remember what I did yesterday, but uh, so I can't remember the specifics of the dates and things <laughs> like that. But, but but Gary said, I'm not going to do it anymore. And he stayed active in, in sort of helping us to maintain our website. Uh, but other than that, he wasn't involved any longer. And one of the things that he did was he did all the on-site organization. He did the matchups. He did the, you know, the rules interpretations. He did the adjudications. I wasn't interested in any of that. And in fact, I've told people before, uh, if, if people depended on, upon me to do that at Albany, Albany would die because uh, my only interest is I'll organize it in terms of, you know, the place and the raffle and stuff. And then I just want to play. Uh, and so what happened was, and I forget the exact date again, but Steve Pleva became interested and decided that he wanted to be part of our tournament. I mean, my God, you know, the the best player in the world, the best player in the U.S., however you want to look at it or what have you. Well, no, that would, that, he, that would be me. That would be you. Okay, sorry. Well, the second best decides that he wants to be involved with us in a big way. And so him coming on really gave us even greater credibility and 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 more interest and you know and, and more focus from from other places etc cetera, etc cetera. and it also it brought in a new element which was you know steve likes to put together his plea of a bidding system uh for bidding on scenarios and things like that and so he got involved when gary pulled away which was great because i needed that other person or persons to be involved in that stuff because I don't play enough scenarios to to you know and don't have enough interest to to pick them out and and go through you know 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 scenarios to determine which 25 or 30 you know make the tournament for what reasons etc but that's what he does and so uh we've done that and we have seen our numbers decline somewhat um you know in the past couple of years and obviously covid was was part of it as well but even before that we saw that 65 go down to you know 55 50 we're probably to the point now where we're a pretty solid you know 40 to 45 uh which is a nice sized tournament uh certainly but i guess i'm not really expecting that we're going to get back to that 65 number for whatever reason, you know, just people as they age, they they go other places or they develop other interests, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it still remains a, a very well regarded and respected um, tournament, which I'm very proud of. And we still get a lot of guys, a lot of people who are regulars and uh, who come back every year. And, uh, and and every year there'll be, you know, somebody who comes out of the woodwork who we haven't seen in a while. And, you know, we um, sometimes I, I, I give a little encouragement to people to get them over from Europe, et cetera, to try and, and pump that up again because that fell off um, certainly in the past few years. You know, but that's the story. So uh, it's it's been a labor of love, you know, among the other things that I was in preparing for this call, I was looking back at some of the stuff because, you know, when I was playing at some point uh, in the beginning, I uh, I wanted to, to I like to write. And so um, I decided that I would do a write up of one of my scenarios as a narrative. So I wrote a story called Bridge to Nowhere about the scenario Bridge to Nowhere. And I found uh, Rob Wolf, who at the time was hooked up with Kurt Schilling in a magazine called Fire for Effect, 
which was out of the Pacific Northwest. And they printed my first story in 1992. And so I really in, enjoyed seeing seeing it in print and having it out there. And so I wrote another one, which was about uh, cold crocodiles, which I called St. Juiced. And I sent that to them. And as it turned out, they were disbanding the magazine, but Critical Hit picked it up. And so they sent my submission to Ray Tapio and, and he printed my story in the first Critical Hit magazine. Of course, one of the things that I learned about Ray, and I learned this later when I did a, my scenario, Final Crisis at Blackpool, which was became a critical hit scenario, was that Ray would take it upon himself to make changes without consulting the author. So when it made it into the magazine, it was called St. Juiced, an ASL you know, fantasy trip or something like that, or no, oh, St. Juiced on my mind, an ASL fantasy trip. Well, I just wanted to call it St. Juice because I thought that I liked that title. So I made it into the magazine and it was fun seeing it there. And then at some point, I had never tried my hand at um, designing scenarios, but I decided to give it a shot. And in this case, Mike Puccio had quite a few scenarios out. So I asked him for his help. And I got a book by a major John Masters called The Road, the Road Past Mandalay. And I guess John Masters was a, a British officer who served with the Gurkhas in Burma. And I read the book and there was a pretty vivid description of an action that took place uh, during the monsoon in which this blocking position they had set up was attacked and ultimately overrun. And so I started to work on it and over the course of a few you know, weeks, months, whatever it was, came up with this design. And so I submitted it to uh, MMP. And a couple of, let's say a month or two later, I, I wrote a letter or I contacted them in some way saying, hey, what's the status of the, you know, my scenario and when will I see it? And the response I got was, well, we haven't gotten to it. We have no idea. It may never get published. So I said, well, that's not good. So I actually had to uh, officially withdraw it from MMP so that I could give it out elsewhere. And so when I withdrew it, I sent it to Evan Sherry at Squarepunked and I sent it to Ray. And so I didn't hear anything about it for a while. And all of a sudden I get contacted by Evan Sherry. And he, he sends me a, a copy of, you know, their playtest version. They're about to start playtesting it. And he was considering, you know, changing the name to just Crisis at Blackpool. And there were a couple of changes he wanted to make. And I was getting real juiced up because, you know, Schwerpunkt had a great reputation. And at that point in time, lots of really cool scenarios were coming out. And were really getting a lot of play and a lot of respect. <coughs> well, the next day... I get contacted by Ray and he said, yeah, did you did you get your new copy of Critical Hit? So, no, he said, turn to page blah, 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 and you'll find CH97, Final Crisis at Blackpool. So, you know, okay. So what I had to do was over the course of three years, contact people na nationally and internationally and, and kind of in effect, beg them to play my scenario. And I gave them the errata, which corrected what Ray had changed. 
because the initial results seemed a little imbalanced. And slowly, slowly, I got more and more play and everybody who was playing it enjoyed it. And it finally got to the point where, you know, I, I offered up prizes. Uh, there's a tournament in Blackpool, England. And my comment was, how can Final Crisis at Blackpool not be included at the tournament in Blackpool? Seems so what I did is I'll tell you what, uh, I'll, I'll make up prize for the, the best British commander and the best Japanese commander. And you can award that simply to get it to be played by more people. And with all of those efforts, it's uh, I guess it was published in 1998. It sits uh, 25 and 28 in Roar with like a 7.13 rating. And uh, it's it's really uh, it's it's been in the Albany tournament once or twice. It's been at the Nor'easter uh, and it's been at some other tournaments as well. And that's that's the only uh, scenario that I have in print. And at this point, it's likely the only one that I'm going to have because I don't really have any interest in, in doing another one for whatever reason. But, uh, but that's the story there. Um, one year, which is interesting, I was I was at Avalon Con and a, uh, a very attractive reporter from the Baltimore Sun walks in and I started to talk to her and I ended up in the Baltimore Sun in the story about the, the tournament and about advanced squad leader and all this other stuff. Wow. wow. So, yeah, that was a that was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, and also what I've done is I, I've I make the diorama trophies. Um, guess over the years, I've probably made a total of about 25 or 26 of them. And at one point, I literally had zero at home. I didn't have one. They were all I sold two and every other one was given away as a tournament trophy, either at the Nor'easter or at Albany. But what I do with them is I name them by me and then I describe, you know, what it is and where and then the uh, the title of, you know, first place at whatever tournament it is, et cetera, et cetera. So Steve Pleva has about five or six of them. Yes. JR has about four of them. Paul Sidhu has about four of them. Um, there are a lot of them out there, but there's a relatively small group of people who actually have them. You have any pictures? Uh, did you take any pictures of any of those? Uh, you know, I've I've got some pictures, and I could ultimately send them to you if if you'd like to see them. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. I always uh, I'm not one of these modelers who uh, you know counts the rivets and says, oh, I've got to cut the rivets off this you know one thirty fifth scale vehicle because they're wrong. I just want the uh, scene to look interesting and dynamic and uh, tell a story. So that's kind of what the, what I base it on. And um, it's 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 been a lot of fun and it's been an element. It's one of the things that ASL led me to and that sort of, uh, you know, opened up the scope of uh, of of what I uh, what I do in the in the hobby. Well, I noticed your scenario is um, 25 to 28. Yes, on so. right. Yeah, it's uh it was important to me to to have a balanced scenario and something that was an interesting challenge and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it took a long time to get it there. It really did. I, uh, I, there were a lot of people who just, especially in the beginning, seeing that it was a critical hit scenario, they just came out and said, I'm not interested. And I had to uh, I had to convince them. 
So uh, it's that was another labor of love, if, if you will. Yeah. A lot of guys that we talk to seem to uh, experience a gap. You know, they start off playing squad leader and then they play ASL and then they have this big interruption in their lives called family. Yes. And, you know, 20 years later, then they get back into the hobby again. Did you have any big gaps like that? Doesn't sound like it. Sounds like you've been. <laughs> no, the um, because running the tournament always kept me involved. Yeah. And it was always something that I did. And, you know, the, I had a young family when I started. So that was never a problem. And I was always, you know, cognizant of not, you know, cutting into family time and all that other stuff. And my wife was nice enough to, you know, let me go away for, you know, two or three days, a couple of times a year uh, and, and deal with that. So that never turned out to be, to be a problem. Interestingly, when the pandemic started, um, I basically didn't do any modeling for um, for a, for a while. Uh, I made a couple of models for myself, um, a one thirty fifth scale uh, PT one oh nine, and uh, there was there was one that I had uh, that I had seen that I was really interested in that I personally I never had a, an interest in making it for anybody but myself. But there was one Panzer of tiling, a, a heavy Panzer group that had a couple of Panthers onto which they welded Panzer IV turrets to turn them into self-propelled guns. And there were a couple of pictures of one of those vehicles on a freight car being transported. And so I said, I really would like to make that, but I really lost interest in making 135th scale models because as you start to get older, it starts to get more and more difficult to work with the really tiny pieces. So I started to work in larger scales like 125th and 116th. So I, I've, there's a guy in Australia who makes 125th scale resin parts and he had a, a really cool Panzer IV turret out of resin. And then I found I had a 125th um, Tamiya uh, Panther, and then I found the parts uh, that were available out there in the internet to scratch build a 125th scale rail car, and I created it. And it took a while, and my intention is to to enter it into a uh, into a competition, and um, but that was something that was interested in. But in terms of modeling, I started to do less of that, and I started to become interested in some other games. And all through the years, up until a couple years ago, I literally only played ASL. And after a while, I guess maybe you look for other things, or, or one of the things that I find too about ASL is it, it is a bit of a grind sometimes in terms of the rules and the rule book and all that other stuff. And sometimes it's fun to find something that's challenging and interesting, but more simplistic. And, and to a certain degree, sometimes, you know, a little more fun. And so I found, um, I got interested in some solitaire games at the beginning of the pandemic. And one of them that I found a copy of was The Raid on St. Nazaire, uh, which was a, a really cool, um, takes a while to play and there's a lot of dice rolling and stuff like that. And you've got to keep records uh, as you lose commandos and, and and motor launches and whatnot, but it really is an excellent solitaire game. And so then I started to look for other games and I found a few that were interesting to play uh, that were specifically designed as solitaire games, 
But then uh, it wet my whistle and I started to look for games that were solitaire friendly because really sitting here, um, I don't have as many opponents as I would like. My brother-in-law, who was my opponent for all those years, just fell out of ASL and gaming completely a number of years ago. And I can't even convince him to get back to play three hours, you know, one night a week. And so luckily I did hook up with a guy by the name of Nick Richardson, who's a game designer and game developer uh, who works for MMP. And, uh, and he and I uh, were playing regularly uh, one night a week for quite a while. Uh, life's gotten in the way of that for a while now. So we haven't played in, um, in quite a while now, but we'll, we'll get back to it eventually. But he plays a lot of other games as well. And uh, so I've been developing a whole you know, library of new games. And I've always been interested in things like you know, in Napoleonics and the Civil War. And so I found a number of, um, of games that are uh, along those lines and, and uh, involve those battles and, and that kind of warfare that, that have been a lot of fun. And uh, so I've been, I've been fooling around with that. And in fact, I think, you know, Albany rolled around this past year and I really, I think I'd only played one or two scenarios uh, all that last year leading up to Albany. And uh, as, it turned, as it turned out, my record probably reflected that because I was 0-3-2. Oh, but, uh, oh, but, well. but I was a very, I was a very competitive 0-3-2. <laughs> uh, uh, only one of the games was a real, um, I won't even call it a blowout, but it wasn't close. Interestingly enough, the others were close. Even that, the one draw I decided on was, uh, had an interesting story, but... Uh, you know, I play to play. Uh, I don't expect to win. I did win. I came in third at the second Albany in 2005. Oh, excuse me. I, yeah, I came in third. And I came in third at uh, Nor'easter 5. But those were the only times that I've really finished with, you know, with any kind of a uh, of a trophy or anything like that. But but I don't care. You know, as long as I'm having fun and, and the camaraderie is there, uh, you know, I'm not playing a cutthroat game. It's just, I'm just there to have fun and just have a good time. That's a yeah. great attitude. Uh, have you been, uh, have you done any virtual, you know, you, you started off playing, uh, you know, by phone, but now with COVID, everybody, everybody's doing, yeah. you know, that. Yeah. I, I, I tried to get into it um, um, a year, a year ago, maybe even a little longer than that. I forget. It was sometime during the pandemic and, uh, Carl Nagara was really helpful because for whatever reason with the computer and the computer setup that I had at the time, I was having great difficulty in trying to get it loaded. And literally Carl, I think it took like three one hour sessions with he and I for, for me to get it loaded finally into my computer. So I did. And then I started to fool around with it and I started to play my first scenario with Mike Puccio. And we got through maybe, you know, a couple of turns. And then what happened was my computer screen went dead. And, and I had to get a new computer. And so <laughs> I, I got rid of it. So now, once again, now I have a new computer with nothing loaded. Uh, and I, w I was looking at the whole, do I now have to go through the whole three-hour, you know, thing again with call <clears throat> to get loaded? And to tell you the truth, you know, I... 
I didn't enjoy the process that much. I mean, I much prefer playing playing uh, in person. Um, you know, outside of of playing ASL online, and I really don't have enough experience with Vazel to judge how good or bad it is for me. Um, I've never found a computer game that's anywhere near as satisfying as you know playing ASL face to face. And and one of the things that um, I didn't like about it, and maybe it was just the fact that I wasn't far enough along to be able to, to negotiate um, the views and all, but I, I like to have a larger view, a more global view. And sometimes you lose that when you hone in on like the different areas on the board and it begins to become more difficult to sort of you know, get the ebb and the flow of the battle and the movement because you're you're not seeing this part over here because you're playing on this part over there. So at least that was my early experience. And um, maybe that sort of soured me on it a little bit. I'm not sure. But, you know, at this point, I didn't play in 2020's Albany virtual tournament. Um, you know, they were telling me, sure, you'll be you'll be up and running. You know, you'll you'll take a couple of weeks and. I didn't feel like I was going to be anywhere near um, up to speed enough to play and to, to 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 give a good game and a fun game to an opponent because I was going to be very slow and very hesitant in terms of how to move and what I needed to do and all that other stuff. So rather than than do that, I just decided that I wouldn't play at all. So 2020, I, I was I was involved in the organization, but I didn't play at all that year. So, uh, you know, we'll see what happens going forward, but I think it's just as likely that I won't be vaseline as if I will. Did, um, I would just for Jeff, I think you were with, when Treza came down to the ASL Open in Chicago. Yes. Jeff, he, he, he was the guy that uh, had a um, penalty flag with him. Yes. <laughs> and he threw it at the ground and started saying like, penalty on so-and-so for yeah. whining like a baby yeah. and i was he's like a, oh my god who is this guy yeah, gary gary was gary. uh he's been a um a professional referee and we used to have a lot of fun with him uh using sort of that part of his personality in addition to that and if you remember he looks an awful like a, a, a awful lot like benito Mussolini. <laughs> and so so what we did one year is I, I found a bust of Mussolini and we uh, I said I told the crowd I'd always come up with like a surprise something or other at, at Albany that would be to poke fun at somebody or sort of have fun at somebody's expense in a good way. And so I told everybody I've got you know, I've got this this bust of Gary Trezza, you know, and I present Mussolini and everybody gets a laugh. And then one year. I, uh, I I wrote up a T-shirt because he used to do the adjudication and he used to really be very serious about how if you if you missed the time limit or if you did this, or you do that, the game would be adjudicated and he would be very, very tough, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I had the translation. I think it's La Perde de Giudicio or whatever. It was like you lose the adjudication in Italian. 
and I had a T-shirt printed or or a, a a sweatshirt, and so it was sort of like telling the players that this is something you don't want to see. And then I give Gary the 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 T-shirt, and he put it on, and he'd you know he'd walk around the room and sort of you know threaten everybody and and whatnot. But and one of the biggest things was one year at the Winter Offensive, uh, they would always have some. Uh, um, surprise prizes that were, um, you know, mystery prizes. So there would be, you know, all the boxes and all this great stuff. And there, there'll literally be like two boxes in, in brown paper with a question mark. So Gary ends up winning one of them and you get to choose, you know, like A or B and he chooses B and it turned out to be a box of board nines. And so to this day, you know, everybody remembers Gary Trezza opening up his prize with all this expectation and finding, I don't know how many were in there, 25, 50 board nines. Uh, so which, that's the. Which one is nine? Is that one of the river ones? or No, uh, nine I... is a, uh, is a, like a mountainous, uh, a mountainous board. Okay. Yeah, no. it was great. It was great. It was great fun. Where did you get 25 board nines? Oh, I didn't. Uh, it was MMP runs winter offensive. And oh, right. so it was from it was from the MMP right. warehouse. So and and every year I think they come up with something that's a little funny, if not funky. Joe, had you come out to the ASL Open at all, or no? I uh, then I went to one. It was not an ASL only tournament. There was one. I guess it's the board game championship. I think it was taking place in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And so yeah. I went there one year. And ASL was one of the events. And the way they ran that tournament was they would have this, this blind event where you'd go in and they'd give you like, you know, I think there was an option. A board would be picked or one or two boards. And then there would be some, there would be vagaries and there would be some options in terms of what was happening and you were kind of playing blind you weren't sure what the victory condition was it was oh. it was strange and so i ended up playing a game and i lost and then what happened was in the second round only the winners went ahead to play and all the losers left and at that point i literally had nobody to play asl with so here i am oh. i'm way at a tournament only interested in playing asl and after one game, I have nobody to play. Oh, so yeah. I, just, not... I bounced around. I think my buddy Nick was working for MMP at the time, and he played a game with me later that afternoon when he had some time. But then the next day, there was nobody. I ended up coming home the next morning. Uh, it was really – I was planning on being there for three days of ASL, and I didn't even get one full day of ASL out of it. So those experiences might have soured me a little bit. Uh, I, I haven't been out to Oktoberfest yet. One of the reasons is is uh, it's it's a longer way to go. Uh, and it seems like, depending upon how you play it, it's it's a longer period of time that you might be there. So I, I and also, open gaming doesn't interest me as much. You know, I'm not really one of these people who gets a scenario and 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 puts a list together and say, "Oh, I really want to play this one." You know, it's there actually I find it a little more a little easier, a little more comforting if that's the right way to look at it, having a a finite list of scenarios, you know, from among which I can choose and only stay with, you know, these 3 or these 3 or whatever, that kind of a thing as opposed to the world is your oyster. 
I've, mm. I've never yeah. really been that good at, at, you know, sussing that kind of stuff out. Yeah, yeah, that's, well, hopefully they fixed having the, I think most tournaments now, everybody gets to play even when you lose these yeah. days but um but yeah the ass lock w- was all open it was it was different i was young when i went there mm-hmm. um but yeah just and it, you can get that if you don't know everybody yeah it's easy to feel like you're just this odd person out you know yeah because uh, i did my first asl open by myself and i didn't mm-hmm. know any and that was where jr beat me i actually ended up like going for third place or something crazy wow but that was mostly That's- luck i think and it's and okay. then Jr. beat me, yeah. But I felt like I don't really know everybody here, and yeah, yeah. But of course, over all the years, you know. You yeah, for sure. It's uh, I I would feel more comfortable now than I would have back then. Yeah, and I'm sure we Jeff and I will say, oh, we'll have to come out to Albany someday, yeah. and then we probably never will. Yeah, yeah it's. I <laughs> we mean, say that to everyone. We yeah, interview. there are a lot. There are a lot of things like that, and um, I mean, the more the merrier. We'd love to have you and all that other good stuff, and. Uh, you know, I'll I'll offer you you both free registration for whatever that's worth. Okay. Uh, if you if you come out our way, um, we have and, our media passes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. That kind of thing. Press. And, and that's the story. Press. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, when is the Al- Albany tournament usually, and how is it looking for this it's, year? What are you thinking? It's, it's always the first weekend after Thanksgiving, uh, and the reason for that was I we looked for you know a a a, a time of year when there weren't competing tournaments and where, you know, we were far, far enough away from my, the Christmas holiday that it was still reasonable. And, when, you know, when we looked around, um, there were no real opportune times of year that weren't really close to another already established tournament somewhere. And we just hit upon that first weekend after Thanksgiving is a time when uh, we'd, we'd be able to get the greatest number of players and we'd be f- far enough from Christmas that we wouldn't cut into that time of the year. So it remains that. So this year it's going to be December 1st through the 4th. Uh, in terms of how it's shaping up, we, uh, you know, we, we had a problem with our, um, our hotel. We, we were at the best Western hotel, one of them for 13 consecutive years, and we never had a problem. And then one year, and I, I forget you know the exact year it was, but only a couple of months before the tournament, and I don't even know why I did, I contacted the hotel. And the guy gets on the phone and says, well, we're going to have a problem. So what do you mean? He said, well, the hotel is being converted into like a senior citizen's home. And I said, when? And they said, well, by the time, you know, your tournament, is, it's going to be converted. I said, well, when were you going to tell me this? Were you going to tell me this like the week before? I said, I've got to find an alternative. So interestingly enough, they own two other hotels in the area. One of them was a much larger um, hotel that had more desirable, you know, like party space. Because what we run into when you when you get close to the holidays is some of these ballrooms being used for these holiday parties. Now, there's been less of that over the years, the way corporations have been going. So it's not as difficult as it used to be. But one of the hotels was a no-go. But there was another one they had, which was out by the airport. And luckily, they had a similarly sized ballroom. And they had they were available. And we were able to just slip right in there. And it worked out fine. Well, that worked out fine for a few years. And now this past year, 
I, I got a call two days before the tournament. And the only reason I got the phone call from the person was because one of the players contacted the hotel to see if he could get a room close to the ballroom. And when he called up, it, I think the person on the phone said, what tournament are you talking about? Oh. So they called me on a Tuesday for a Thursday start to tell me that the ballroom that I had a contract for was not available. Oh. Well, we they ended up putting us into two other rooms, but it turned into, it, it was pretty, it was pretty disastrous. And yeah, it, not ideal. It, yeah, it was a problem. So it, there was another hotel in the area that actually had been interested in our tournament um, a number of years ago. So one of our players is a close personal friends with the owners. So he and I went over and we're going to be moving to a new home, which is a, a holiday inn, uh, which is about eight minutes from our previous location. And I'm, I'm finalizing the, uh, the contract with them this week, but that'll be fine. It's it's going to be a much larger space. It's a it's a nicer hotel, uh, and they really are excited about uh, having us. You know, one of the things that we do, and I failed to talk about it earlier, but you know, we do this raffle, and I found out early on um, that if you ask many times, nine out of ten times, you get. And so early on, I started to contact. Uh, Osprey Publishing and and other um, military publishers like Casemate. Uh, I contacted uh, Armchair General Magazine early on and developed a relationship with the publisher there. And then over the years, uh, contacted authors like Bernard Cornwell and uh, and John Wilcox, who writes these Simon Fonthill novels, and this Irish author who I got friendly with, John Stack, who does these. Um, Roman uh, naval uh, novels and whatnot, and and lots of them have donated, you know, signed copies, multiple books. Um, you know, there have been times when you know I'd I'd get, you know, four hundred dollars worth of books from Osprey, or uh, get all kinds of stuff, and I would augment it by <laughs> buying some of the some prizes myself and. And then, you know, I'd include some things like, you know, models that I had that were part of my stash and I'd, I'd, I'd buy helmets. I'd sometimes, you know, people would donate stuff. Sometimes some of the players would would bring books of their own or things that they had and we'd use some of them. And it just became a part of the of the tournament that people look forward to. And we're trying to streamline it, streamline it because it does end up. Uh, sort of cutting into uh, tournament time and we're trying to keep it down because there, there are times when, you know, we've had to take as much as, you know, 45 minutes or more away from gaming time on that Saturday in the middle of those two scenarios that day. You know, people like LFT donate every year, the the Bounding Fire guys, uh, they're all, they're terrific. This, uh, dispatches from the bunker, uh, Death to Fascism, uh, the friendly fire guys. Uh, it, it's we always yeah. a whole bunch of uh, of scenario packs that that uh, that are part of the uh, part of the raffle. And I can at some point I'll probably I'll send you a, a couple of pictures of some of the dioramas and I'll uh, yep I'll send, you, I'll send you um, a video or a couple of pictures of the. Uh, of the raffles they uh they've been pretty impressive over the yeah years. that'd be great we'll post them with the show because we are about an hour here okay uh, we should probably wrap it up and mm -hmm. um 
Anything else that you want to add or jump No, other, other than to say just thank you very much. Certainly, you know, I've, I've, uh, ASL has really enriched my life, uh, you know, since the early 80s. It really has. It's, it's offered me a lot of things that wouldn't have existed without it in terms of friendships and camaraderie and places to go and things to do and, and things to be involved with. So, and my life would have been a lot different without it. And so, uh, people like you who, you know, work hard to sort of further it and and, and get the word out and, and, you know, tell people about all these different aspects of this great hobby are, are really uh, to be commended and appreciated. So thanks a lot. I'm, I'm honored that you, you, uh, you chose me and uh, gave me this soapbox. Yep. Pleasure. It's been a, been a perfect show. So very interesting. And, and, I, and I will say we'll try to get out. <laughs> you never know. Well, and if nothing else, you know, we'll we'll try to uh, mention the tournament as often as we can, and hopefully, uh, you know, attendance will go up a little bit, and uh, okay. there'll be more prizes to spread around to more people this time. So maybe people will only go home with three instead of four. Yeah, the one <laughs> one thing, and and uh, I'll leave you with this. You know, we tried the past few years to pump up the um, starter kit play. And Mitch Abrams is a guy who came on board with us to kind of be like our starter kit guru and tournament director. And unfortunately, we've never been able to get the number of starter kit players up over maybe, you know, two or three. And we, we were hopeful that we could sort of, you know, get as many as eight so we could have a real starter kit tournament within a tournament. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, We've been unable to do that. So if at some point you guys can uh, can help in that respect and get more starter kit players interested in, uh, you know, coming out and, and, and try giving it a try, that'd be great. Okay. We'll do what we can. They've all heard it here. So. Okay. <laughs> all right. Thanks well, thank a lot. Thank you very much. Thanks so again, Joe. Thanks. A happy New Year and a healthy New Year to you guys. Same yes, to you, you too care. and everyone there. Take, Take care. care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.